Chichester Cinephile. The podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, it's May 2020 and we're back again with our third podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park. As we record this, it's pouring outside and West Sussex is sodden, so what better time to talk about films? We are Carol. Hello everyone, it's um, Carol Godsmark from the cinema. And Patrick. Hi, it's Patrick from the education team at the cinema. And I'm Sandy, I've got no official title, but uh, I'm a regular at the cinema. (laughs) In this edition of the podcast, we have a couple of supporting features later on, with a new voice to the podcast talking about how to survive lockdown as a film fan. And then Patrick will be talking about Max von Sydow. Before that, we'll provide some recommendations for films you can stream or rent to watch at home. And there'll be the first in what we hope is a regular series on the history of the major studios. First of all, we're going to be running another mini cine circle. Under normal conditions, the cine circle is where a group of us get together once a month in a pub to talk about some films we've seen. It's just the three of us, but we'll do our best to stimulate discussion. The first film we're going to talk about is being introduced by Carol. I don't know uh, how many people have seen this, but if not, you have missed an excellent film. It's a documentary called American Factory, and you can see it on Netflix. And it came out last year. And the Obamas have something to do with it because they've started on their new lives. Creating film is, is one of their interests. So the, the story about uh, American Factory is post-industrial Ohio, And a Chinese billionaire opens a new factory on the husk of an abandoned plant. So the Fuayo Glass Company of China replaces the former General Motors building in 2014. And it looked really, really promising. Even though many former workers were hired back at half their union wages, most were glad to be employed again, manufacturing windscreens for cars and trucks. But soon the demands of the Chinese owner is to increase production at the risk of employee and environmental safety and to institute 12-hour workdays, including weekends, doesn't really suit the, the American employees. And Chinese managers grumble about the American culture. Everyone who grows up in the U.S. is overconfident or they have big fingers so they can't really work very, very fast. And the flip side is that an American woman at the Ohio factory marvels. They refer to us as foreigners. The frustrated American workers try to unionize but are battled at every turn and most lose their jobs, replaced by Chinese workers who leave their families behind. American Factory is a disturbing economic expose about the way we live now and a cautionary tale about the vanishing middle class. Patrick? Like Carol, I thought it was an excellent film. I thought it was it was quite depressing in a way, but also very funny. I thought it was very interesting to see the kind of culture clash between the Chinese culture and the American culture, which was truly kind of, the gulf was enormous. And it kind of made you think, do, 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 with the, the Chinese being becoming involved more globally, will the kind of blending of the two cultures ever actually work? I think the other issue, it, it was to do with objectivity, because I don't know if you could, did either of you see, there was a 10 minute sort of short interview with the Obamas that the the filmmakers what the filmmakers Steve Bogner and Julia Wright yes yes I thought yes yeah and they they were saying how that it was supposed to be the Obamas company's called higher ground and the idea is that they're they're not trying to push a particular line they were trying to be objective and even-handed do do you think they 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 managed this objectivity what I liked about it was that there was practically no opinion from the filmmakers there was no commentary it was just left to the viewer to take whatever was said at face value and the the culture clash and the the way the americans were talking about the chinese and particular the way the chinese were rather dismissive of the americans i thought was absolutely fascinating but then i also thought it was a little bit of a confusing message uh, for the whole film because 
The whole film was about the culture clash and the unionization problems because the Chinese didn't want the union and some of the workers, I think probably quite a lot of the workers, did want a union and there was a big vote for it and there was a lot of, we're going to pull out if they get the union and this sort of thing. But then suddenly at the end there was a caption talking about jobs being replaced by robots. I wasn't expecting that. I, was, um, I didn't necessarily need a conclusion, but I was surprised that it seemed to change tack at the last minute. So I think it showed that it was pretty well all in vain. And that's, uh, if you are replaced by a robot, then it also demonstrates the, the way that we are going now. And I guess it really did have to come out because this is what is happening in the manufacturing industries worldwide to a great extent. So this is a view of the future. I also admired, as a, in filmmaking terms, the way that they managed to embed themselves and everyone seemed happy to talk and there was no sign of, oh, we're talking to a camera, oh, there's a camera following us around. They managed to be pretty much fly on the wall most of the time, which I thought was very impressive. I think, Sandy, it wasn't the point, really, that there wasn't supposed to be a message as such, in as much as what they were trying to do was give a voice to both sides and be even-handed and not, you know, push a particular line. Oh, and then absolutely. In the same way that they're giving a voice to each, to each side in an even-handed way, they then leave you as the audience to take of it, you know, what you, what you will, to take your own, your own message. I, I agree. That's why I was a little surprised by the caption at the end, which seemed to be... Say, well, I think they were just reporting the yeah. fact that that's what happened, you know, because some people think automation and robots and so on will, you know, give way to a wonderful future where people won't have to do boring, horrible, repetitive jobs because the jobs were horrible, weren't they? What they were having yeah. to do. Oh, yeah. These long hours of just horrible, repetitive work. The conditions are not favorable. Doing the same thing over and over again that wears on your body, mind, your soul. It's sometimes you think, why am I doing this? You think about whether you have the stamina and the will to do this type of job. Now, on the one hand, you might then say, well, that's great because people won't have to do that anymore because robots will do it. But on the other hand, there's no jobs, <laughs> so or there are fewer jobs. Whether you, you regard that as, as an optimistic future uh, or a pessimistic future is, is depends on your perspective. Yeah, I, I particularly enjoyed parts of it because I've been, in my former professional life, I've been around lots of factories that are very similar to that in Europe, America and in the Far East. And also I've been to some Japanese and Chinese factories in Europe and you do notice the cultural differences and I thought they brought that out very well. I thought it was riveting. I, I loved it. And when, when I heard it had won the Oscar for Best Documentary, I couldn't believe that it had beaten Force Armour, which this Syrian documentary, which I thought was amazing as well. But I can see why people liked it so much. Superb film. OK, moving on to the next film. Uh, Patrick's going to introduce this one. Notre is a French thriller from 2016, written and directed by Bertrand Bonello, about a group of young terrorists who plant bombs in various locations around Paris and then hide out in a department store where one of them works as a, as a security guard. The film has little dialogue, but the soundtrack is foregrounded throughout, including some original material composed by the director, but also an eclectic range of non-original music, including this. Guardian suggested that it made terrorism look cool. What are your thoughts, guys? I thought it was absolutely wonderful. This was a film that we showed at the um, film festival, 
and uh, it was right on the cover of the film festival brochure. And it was quite remarkable in, in the way that it looked because uh, it had a gold mask. And I think people will remember it for this gold mask that the terrorists wore. I really enjoyed this film. It was an exacting vision of a terror plot. It's very, very stylized and a psychological thriller. And I loved the long takes that they, they did. And it wasn't the usual characters. It's usually people disaffected from the, the banlieue, the outskirts of Paris. But this is about a huge different type of Parisian of mixed backgrounds. And I really like that side of it. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Going, going back to did it make terrorism look cool, I didn't think it did because there were several very shocking bits where they behaved appallingly which I wasn't expecting. I thought that the start was rather too slow for me. I thought the first five or ten minutes was very gripping, but then the first five or ten minutes actually went on for about 25 minutes, and I, and I was beginning to lose patience a bit with the, the setup. But once you got to know the characters a little bit, and then they behaved the way they did, we won't go into too many details, um, there were some shocking moments that I don't think made it did look cool. And I thought the last act was absolutely brilliant. I thought it was handled so well. Interesting with the, the music, we played a little bit there. Surprising music, because that was John Barry from uh, the 19, early 1970s with the theme from The Persuaders, suddenly popped out. But then they used that slightly different music in different ways to... Things were happening at the same time. And they used the music going back to a certain point to show that it was happening at the same time. And I thought that was very clever because after the first time you thought, oh, hang on, the music's gone back. And then you go, ah, it's because that was happening uh -huh. and we're seeing it from different angles. And I thought that was very clever. And I think it was important that it was something recognisable but also different to the rest of the music, which is rather sort of hip hoppy sort of music that made it easy to follow. Um, I don't know what you think. I'm going to take issue with you two in as much as I wasn't quite so impressed in as much as you said, Sandy, once we get to know the characters, but I never really felt we did get to know the characters. We saw very little kind of background to their ordinary lives. There was, although we, it was never explained why they were setting these bombs off. No, I, I do agree with that. There was um, no explanation. I, I felt they were they were almost like ciphers, you know. It was a very kind of postmodern thriller. It was very glossy. It was all all surface and no substance. I I kind of felt, and all these kind of references to other films, like um, and and to other music, like like you said, like the John Barry and or obvious references. I mean, the director admitted himself to Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which largely takes place in a in a deserted department store. And I kind of felt it was very stylish and flashy, but uh, it didn't didn't really move me. I didn't care enough about the what happened to the characters at the end. Well, I, I did, even though I knew nothing about them. I felt that I created my own images, but I did want to know a bit why were they disaffected? What what I mean, what? it wasn't just that they weren't getting jobs. No, um, no, no. I, I they weren't from a particular background were there or anything they they were and they were they didn't seem to be motivated by religion there was not there, there was a bit where they discussed an essay they were having to do obviously at university and there, there wasn't any particularly explicit ideology was there it was just I it yeah. suddenly just this moment I suddenly realized that it's a little bit like um, assault on precinct 13 and that you don't know anything about anyone the director referenced that oh, as, did he? A, as an yeah. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. When, when I read an interview as well, the other thing, he made them all watch a short British film from 1989 called Elephant, directed by Alan Clark. That is an incredibly bleak film. It was filmed in Belfast in 1989. It's 40 minutes long, and the entire 40 minutes consists of 18 murders where you just see um, a guy, a long tracking shot of a guy approaching the victim. He then shoots the victim. He walks away, and then after he's walked away, the, the camera cuts to a shot of the victim, holds that for about 10 or 15 seconds, and then you're on, and that's it. There is no explanation, no dialogue, and he made them all watch that, apparently. And, uh, but that is very, very bleak in really kind of bleak part of Belfast compared to Not Your Armour, which is all very kind of glossy and... Um, and, uh, and shiny. One other thing I noticed, just as a final thought on it, which I think is strange, 
uh, is the subtitling. There was one point where one of the characters came out of an HSBC bank and the subtitle was HSBC. And it had it across the front of the of the bank and on the subtitle. And I thought, was it worth the effort? I thought that was strange. Okay, let's move on to another film. This is The Other Side of the Wind, which is a lost film from Orson Welles, sort of. Shooting started in 1970 and continued until 1976, with Welles working sporadically on it until the 1980s. It was finally released in 2018, 35 years after his death. It's a mockumentary about an ageing film director who is putting on a screening of parts of his latest film on his birthday. Sundry journalists, writers and other hangers-on are in attendance. Actor and director John Huston plays the fictional director Jake Hannaford, who's a kind of Wellesian figure himself. Some of the dialogue is, is that he comes up with is just pure Wells. Film director Peter Bogdanovich, who directed The Last Picture Show and What's Up Doc, is his acolyte. And there are appearances by various other film directors as in as themselves or in character. Wells' companion in his later years, Croatian actor Oya Koda, stars in the film within the film, which gets confusing, and is credited as a co-writer of the film itself, if you see what I mean. Here, Hannaford is driving about in an open-top car full of journalists as the Bogdanovich character talks about his mentor. Mr Hannaford began his career as a prop man. For the old cliffhangers. You were a property man? Bombs, you know, buzz saw, pit, pits full of deadly serpents. He provided all the... Hey, Skipper, don't turn on the radio. I'm uh, in the middle of... I'm telling your life story. This was in Hollywood? Of course it was Hollywood. He, uh... He shared a, a bungalow with his first leading man, you know? I even know his name, Frank Fryer. How about that, Skipper? I'm the only one who's not doing a book about you. My book on Hannaford been cancelled. Cancelled? Indefinitely. The first five chapters took the two of us three and a half years to, to do. Uh, I finally I had to start directing myself so I could eat. The rest is history. So the, the question is whether this is a load of pretentious tosh or is it cleverly lampooning that sort of pretentious tosh? Who would like to go first on this one? <laughs> Well, I must confess, oh. <laughs> I, I didn't, um, I didn't see it. I've only read about it, but I, I liked what one critic said, and he, and he said it's not a rose dud. <laughs> so I think that was quite, quite funny. <laughs> so Patrick, what did you think? I recommended it. So um, obviously, I did think it was absolutely outstanding. I loved it, but I can quite see why people might think it was a load of pretentious tosh because it is a very kind of experimental film. Apparently there was no actual script as such. There was, uh, it was, uh, it was mo most of the, a lot of the dialogue was kind of improvised and there isn't a huge amount of plot. I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved Houston as the director. He was kind of born to play that role and he was, he was kind of playing himself as well as playing Wells really in a way and I think what's interesting about it is that whereas Wells obviously was almost kind of destroyed by the Hollywood system, Houston managed to play the Hollywood system absolutely perfectly and managed to and, and took on commercial films to make money and then would do much more personal films and, and he seemed to adapt to it so much better than Wells. I thought seeing all the different characters from the past you know, apart from Bogdanovich, like the other people, like Susan Strasberg and Lily Palmer and Edmund O'Brien and Mercedes McCambridge and Paul Stewart, all these great Hollywood character actors playing kind of like versions of themselves sometimes and sometimes playing versions of other people. And it's very funny as well. I think it is a kind of satire on on uh, on. on Hollywood at the time, which was obviously at that time in the early 70s, undergoing massive changes. The whole new Hollywood thing had come in. And I think, and the, and the film within the film is, you know, as mentioned, is, is, a, is a kind of spoof of European art house cinema of the 60s. I, I just thought it was fantastic. But I, I can, what, what did you, what did you think, Sandy? Then? Did you think it was pretentious flat travel? Did I thought it was un, unutterably tedious. Um, I got, um, <laughs> 
extraordinarily frustrated. It would the, the conceit of it was that they were able to reassemble what happened that night in, in the documentary because there were cameras everywhere because people were filming Absolutely. it. So it kept going yeah. from black and white to colour and the quick cuts and it, it yeah. was just nonsense because um, the sound was perfect always, even though the cameras were apparently hidden in trees and um, and I, I was I was I got so fed up with the quick cuts that I found that completely distracting. I it reminded me of a film I saw in the nineteen eighties when I think it was Vin Vendors made a film, but when he had about ten minutes between two other films, and he got Sam Fuller, yeah. and that was one of the most boring films I have ever sat through. <laughs> And it what reminded me of that. Of <laughs> what did you think of the film within the film? I, I thought that was... Which was the other side of the wind, of course. Yeah, um, I thought if, if, if I'd seen 10 minutes of clips from that, I'd have laughed and thought that was funny. But there was more than that. And it was set in two hours of something else that really was about 45 minutes of fun. I, I enjoyed, I thought the first 10 minutes or so, I thought, oh, this is going to be quite quite intriguing. You know, I'm, I like film and this is all sort of being sort of funny about filmmakers. And then, yeah, it went on and on and on and on and on. And I didn't care about any of the characters. I just cared about when it was going to end, to be quite honest. I just thought, I'd go, go and see Day for Night, the Francois Truffaut film. It does it all much better. Sorry. Mm. No, I, I'm, I'm no, it's fine. I'm really not surprised. When when you decided that we were going to discuss this, I thought, hmm, I wonder how you're going I, to react to it. I tell you what I did like was the score by Michel Legrand, which was fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, if I'd, buy, I'd yeah. buy the soundtrack album, but I not the film. But yeah, that's, that's yeah. just me. So you, did, you didn't like all the kind of Hollywood in-jokes and the, the kind of bitchy characterizations. I, I just found it all very I thought amusing. It was, and, uh, I thought it was full of in-jokes for directors, which probably hmm. the rest of the world wouldn't get. Maybe you're more in tune with that. But I, yeah, I could see they were being funny and that they were lampooning. But I just thought, OK, you've made your point. And although the film within the film was ridiculous and preposterous and over the top, which it was, it was great. I loved the bit where she attacks the huge inflatable phallus. Oh, well. <laughs> <the parents. laughs> yeah. Um... There were some stunning shots in it as well, some really oh, uh, yeah. amazing shots. Can either of you shed a light on, on the name? Does it really uh, relate to the film or what does it relate to, if anything? The title, The Other Side of the Wind, Carol, is the title of the film within the film. And it's also the title of the overall film. And it's a kind of, as, as a typically enigmatic, kind of meaningless title. And that, that's kind of part of the joke. That's how I took it, Sandy, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm quite willing to believe that it was trying to puncture the um, nonsense of Hollywood and pretentious films but I mean I, I ended up thinking well it, it was an unfinished film for a reason perhaps because Orson Welles realised that it wasn't working. That's not quite true in as much as the reason it was unfinished is because like so many of these projects they ran out of money and then the money had been forthcoming from the Iranian government and the Iranians actually impounded the print of the film so no one could get hold of it to actually finish editing it. So it wasn't it wasn't a deliberate thing. Oh, that, uh, how interesting. But I, I'm going to stand by it. I loved it. I found it hugely entertaining, very funny, and quite a, a kind of perfect epitaph on Orson Welles' career in Hollywood, really, which uh, was such a series of disasters, basically. Now that I know the history behind it, I think I might delve into it. So thank you for that. Orson Welles has always had this difficulty in making his own films anyway, and he had such a long list of what he really wanted to make throughout his career, and he felt very much misunderstood, and perhaps this comes out in this particular film or not. I have yet to see it, so I will find out. And it's available on Netflix. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Blow. 
Next, we move on to the studio feature with Carol. The first studio that we're looking at, and we hope that this is a series of, of looking at different studios around the world, is Pinewood Studios. Uh, it now celebrates its 84th year of producing some of, of Britain's most iconic films. From James Bond to Harry Potter, from Carry On Films to Superman, Pinewood has been at the forefront of the UK film industry for eight decades. The studios were opened in 1936 at Heatherden Hall, Ivor Heath, Buckinghamshire, and have witnessed the emergence of some of the screen's most memorable characters, Norman Wisdom, Luke Skywalker, and 007, to name but a few. The Victorian estate was originally privately owned, and at one time was used as a retreat and private meeting place for politicians and diplomats. The promise to form the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed at Heatherden Hall. In 1934, the estate was purchased by the building tycoon Charles Boot, who turned the mansion into a country club for the rich and famous. And then he entered into partnership with the Methodist millionaire. Can the two really go together? Methodist millionaire? Anyway, that's who he is, J. Arthur Frank. And they transformed the land into a film studio. Boot officially named it Pinewood because of the number of trees which grow there and because it seemed to suggest something of the American film center in its second syllable. So high hopes indeed for this estate turned into film creation. Their partnership ultimately led to the development of the rank organization. When the studios were officially opened on the 30th September 1936, its first year produced no less than eight films in frenzied production, the first one being Talk of the Devil, a crime film. Then depression hit the British film industry. There was a six-year pause between World War II when the studios were requisitioned by the Army Film and Photographic Unit. Back in business in 1946, by the 1950s, Pinewood had become home to some of Britain's most popular comedy productions, including the carry-on films. Well, who are you? 4277298, Private Hayward M, sir. Hayward? Ah. Ever heard of General Hayward? My father, sir. Really? Rear Admiral Hayward? My grandfather, sir. Air Commodore Hayward? My uncle, sir. Ah, quick test. What's the first thing that comes into your head? Women, sir. You're a soldier by tradition and instinct. What's this man, Sergeant? And Norman Wisdom's feature-length productions. In 1962, Ian Fleming's James Bond stepped onto the world stage when Dr. No was filmed at Pinewood. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objections. Sean Connery went to star in a number of Bond movies at the studio throughout the 60s and the early 70s, including Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. The first Superman film was produced here, starring Christopher Reeve, and surprisingly to, to me anyway, Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. The sequel, Superman 2, was also filmed two years later here which was followed by Alien, starring Sigourney Weaver. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. Throughout the 80s, the James Bond films continued to be filmed here. For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to Kill, and The Living Daylights. Meanwhile, Pink Panther and Pink Floyd's The Wall, directed by Alan Parker, also became subjects of films produced at the studios in the early 1980s. The first Batman film, starring Michael Keaton, was completed at Pinewood in 1989, and was followed by Full Metal Jacket, directed by Stanley Kubrick. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to, and the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. 
In the late 90s, Pinewoods was acquired by the Rank Group by a team led by Michael Grade and Ian Dunleavy. And early in 2001, Pinewood Studios and Shepperton Studios had successfully completed a merger, creating one of the largest and best equipped faculties in the world. Uh, Shepperton Studios is near London, near Heathrow, by the way. In the same decade, another flurry of James Bond films came out, this time starring Pierce Brosnan. Other films followed Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, 28 Days Later, Love Actually, and Nanny McPhee in 2005. Dan Brown's A Da Vinci Code was released the following year, and The Bourne Ultimatum was finished in 2007. Harry Potter was filmed for the first time there in 2010 for the first part of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Versions of Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny English, X-Men, Sherlock Holmes, The Hobbit, and Les Miserables have all been produced here, and Pinewood also becoming the base for Star Wars, The Force Awakens. No Time to Die, the coronavirus-delayed Bond film was filmed here in 2019, as was Morbius and Black Widow, both Marvel films, plus the highly successful Emma, but the flop Doolittle with Robert Downey Jr. didn't excite audience, but Sam Mendes' award-winning film 1917 did. In 2021, films to emerge will include I Care A Lot, a thriller with Rosamund Pike, and there are many others to look forward to when life resumes some degree of normality. But Pinewood has other strands to its empire, creating a global network of studios, including a state-of-the-art studio complex in Atlanta, Georgia, the mega stage in Toronto, and a unique water filming facility in the Dominican Republic. And don't forget Shepperton Studios near Heathrow, continuing to be part of Pinewood. Netflix is setting up a production hub here as well. In the sign of the confidence that Disney has in UK production, as well as the strength of government tax incentives, it was announced last year that the company had agreed a 10-year deal which will have an impact on British production. Disney has block-booked the highest-profile production facilities in Britain, meaning that Disney will be taking over nearly all of the studios, stages and space. Would it be a safe bet that Pinewood masterminds Charles Boot and Jane Arthur Rank might not have envisaged this astonishing growth, which they had kicked off eight decades before? But they aimed high then too and would applaud the remarkable global success story that is Pinewood. But do any of those pine trees which have caught Boot's attention remain? Tell me, do you have a rain? So, with no cinema to go to at the moment, we can only get our film fix from the TV via DVD and streaming services. We're going to give you some ideas of films you can stream and rent now. So, Patrick first. Hustlers is an American drama currently available free on Amazon Prime if you're a Prime subscriber, directed by Lorene Scafaria and based on a 2015 article in New York magazine about a group of strippers who drug their clients and steal from them. And here's Cliff. I just want to take care of my grandma, maybe go shopping every once in a while. When I was a kid, I always wanted to work with animals. <laughs> I was close. These Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. But it's like robbing the bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? It stars Jennifer Lopez, Constance Wu, and Julia Stiles. And if it sounds like a bit of a romp, it's actually a pretty bleak tale with terrific performances by the three leads. My first choice is Big Night from 1996. It's the story of two Italian brothers, Primo and Secundo, who have emigrated to the US to open a restaurant. Primo is a spectacular chef and Secundo runs the front of house, but they're not finding it easy. They go for broke in the end with a party in the hope that singer Louis Prima will turn up. 
Minnie Driver is Secundo's girlfriend, and Isabella Rossellini and Ian Holm are among the supporting cast. The brothers are played by Tony Shalhoub, who plays Primo, and Stanley Tucci, who plays Secundo, and Tucci co-wrote and co-directed the film. It's a funny look at the fish-out-of-water Italians trying to find their feet, and it's about food and relationships and other things as well. I watched it again, having seen it about 25 years ago, and I enjoyed it a lot, but maybe not quite as much as the first time, and it struck me this time as being a little bit stagey. It's fun, though, and here's a clip from near the beginning when Secundo has to go back into the kitchen with a request from a customer. Primo, please, just... Come on. I want to know for whom. Just make me the salad or spaghetti, please. Secondo, I want to know for who is it for? For the lady with the risotto. What? Why? She likes starch. I don't know. Come on. <sighs> Bitch. I make it myself. Ah! Why are these people in America? I need to talk to her. Oh, please. Primo, what are you going to do? Tell the customer what she can eat, huh? That is what she wants. That is what the customer asks for. Make it. Make the pasta. Make it. Make it. Make the pasta. Come on, let's go! How can she want? They both are starch. Maybe I should make a mashed potato for on the other side. It's available on Netflix and can be rented in various other places as well. I've gone for Phantom Thread, which came out in 2017, and you can find it on Netflix. And it's just one of these wonderful films that you will wallow in and be thankful for, I hope. A brilliant English couturier of the post-war age, fastidious and cantankerous, humorless and preposterous Daniel Day-Lewis gives us his cinema swan song in this new film from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. He is Reynolds' Jeremiah Woodcock, celebrated dressmaker to the debutantes of Britain. But he's now under pressure from the new look and influences from across the channel. He treats us to a fine display of temper on the subject of that unforgivably meretricious word, chic. Just when he's at his lowest, he falls in love with a shy, gauche German waitress, played by Vicky Cripps, who then turns into this wonderful, beautifully dressed person, and she really does gain a lot of confidence, much to his dismay and to a great extent, because she's come to live with him as his assistant, where Woodcock rules with his sister and confidant Cyril, played by Leslie Manville. And here's a clip from Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Grips. Do you like it? I do. No, you don't. You don't like it at all. Usually you always tell me what you think. What is this? You're lying. As I think you know, Alma, I prefer my asparagus with oil and salt. And knowing this, you have prepared the asparagus with butter. Now, I can imagine in certain circumstances being able to pretend that I like it made this way. Right now, I'm just admiring my own gallantry for eating it the way you've prepared it. I don't know what I'm doing here. And that is available on Netflix, and you can rent it from lots of places as well. And now back to Patrick. Connaissez-vous Marguerite, une femme ni grande ni petite Qu'un les yeux trop blancs, un arrosé blanc, une petite bouche d'enfant Eh bien cette beauté suprême, quand je lui ai dit je t'aime Ma bonnette est fleur, me disant farceur, je me fais retour bonheur Je lui dis merci du bouquet, mais c'est moi ça qui me voudrait Si tu veux faire mon bonheur, Marguerite, Marguerite, that was Julian Carette singing Marguerite in Jean Renoir's La Grande Illusion. When researching my talk on Jean Renoir, which I gave last November in the studio, I became painfully aware how difficult it was to get hold of many of his films. So it's with pleasure that I can point you in the direction of Movie, who are showing two of his films currently, including this masterly World War I drama, La Grande Illusion, with Jean Gabin, Marcel Dalio. Pierre Frenet and Eric von Stroheim, and also his superb adaptation of Zola's novel, La Bête Humaine. 
Now, our job is to point you towards films that you might not know, but also ones you might have forgotten about. For example, The Getaway might be an example of one that you've not thought about for a long time. I'm talking about the Sam Peckinpah version from 1972 and not the remake. What's not to like about it? Apart from Peckinpah in his prime, the screenplay is by future director Walter Hill. The stars are Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw. Ben Johnson's Slim Pickens and Dub Taylor feature in it, that's always a plus, and the fantastically moody score is by Quincy Jones. There's even some classy harmonica work by Belgian maestro Toots Tielemans, who's a particular hero of mine. The film is based on a pulp novel by Jim Thompson. The story is of Doc McCoy, who is wangled out of prison so he can lead a bank robbery. Ali McGraw is his wife, and was his wife in real life as well. Not all goes smoothly in the robbery, despite being meticulously planned. Here's Steve McQueen and some of Quincy Jones's music. Now we got trouble, so clear the car. Yes, sir, can I help you? I want a shotgun, 12-gauge pump. This one right here. Yeah, that's fine. Wrap it up. Sir, you'll have to sign this form here. Now, let me have a pack of those double-odd bucks. What are you going to do, knock a wall down? Sir, you'll have, to, you'll have to fill out this form here, sir. You know what this is, don't you, mister? Yeah. All right, now wrap that up. Let's go. The Getaway can be rented from Google Play or from YouTube as well. I highly recommend Sana, which came out in 2011. This has had several outings at uh, Chichester Cinema at New Park. And it's not just for, for people who think cars are number one in their lives. It's for everyone who likes the story of a fighter. Ayrton Senna, the Brazilian Formula One champion, um, his life was far too short. He died age 34 after a crash at the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix. His relationship between his greatest rival, the Frenchman Alain Prost, is exposed here. And Prost's belief that Senna's religious faith was dangerous inasmuch as it made him believe he couldn't be killed. The film's tragic ending is deeply moving and it's well worth catching up on. And here's a clip from Senna from the trailer, in fact. 78, I came to Europe to compete for the first time. It was pure driving, it was real racing. And that. That makes me happy. You can rent Senna from Amazon, Chile, Apple, YouTube and other places. Now, talking of YouTube, we'd like also to mention a new festival that's going to be coming at the end of May. The 10-day We Are One, a global film festival, will feature content from the Berlin, Cannes, Sundance, Toronto, Tribeca and Venice film festivals. There are no details yet about what films are going to be showing, but it starts on the 29th of May for 10 days and could well be worth a look. Who are those guys? We have a couple of supporting features now and we're being joined by a new voice on the podcast, Sue Gilson. Before the feature, let's meet her. Hello, Sue. Hello. We always like to ask new people on the podcast two questions to start with, just to find out a bit about you. So, what was the first film you remember seeing at the cinema? Well, as with probably many um, people of my age, growing up as a young girl in the 60s, Disney played a huge part in our sort of formative film years. And it's got to be Bambi, really, um, because I remember going to the Odeon, which was at the bottom of Uxbridge High Street in West London, where I grew up, um, with my mum. 
and my mum would undoubtedly have been in her fur coat with her Chanel number no. five perfume on because you dressed up for a cinema outing. And we watched Bambi and obviously heartbroken by the death of um, Bambi's mother in the film, one of those dark moments that you have as a child that stay with you forever. But also enchanted by the young deer and his forest friend, Flower, the skunk, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Bumper, the rabbit. Uh, they were just delightful, and it was a beautiful film. The second question we like to ask is, what film do you think should be made compulsory viewing for everyone? This is a contemporary film. It won Best Oscar for Foreign Film in 2017, and it's a landmark film because it was the first Oscar winner to feature a transgender storyline and also to have a transgender actor in the lead role. And it is A Fantastic Woman by the Chilean director Sebastian Lilio. And it's a beautifully crafted film. It's got surreal elements, it's got fantastical elements, um, but it's a very human story of how a young transgender singer called Marina is played beautifully by Daniela Vega, is the transgender actor, who gets humiliated, abused, assaulted after the, lo- after the death of her lover, and she has to face society and, in Santiago alone. It's very touching, it's very moving, it's ultimately very uplifting. So I would recommend that film if you haven't seen it already. Good choice. Now, you, you're a writer about films. Who, who do you write for? Well, I was the editor of the Chichester Observer magazine for five years, and when the film festival came around, I would usually devote the whole magazine to the film festival, which was brilliant because I'd ask Roger and Walter for their top picks, and so I'd get an insight into which films were good to watch at the festival that year. I've also helped Carol um, with the marketing of the cinema and with the publicity and helped to put together a magazine we brought out for the cinema called Flicks a couple of years ago, and also the Ruby magazine publication that was launched out last year for um, the cinema's 40th birthday. I also write for my son's film journal in Belfast called Playtime, which he set up himself, um, and it's it's an academic, but it's also a very accessible film magazine with lots of interesting essays, thought pieces, reviews. And I also do um, lino cuts for illustrations to go with the films in the magazine. All right. So you really love film? I do. I love film. I love writing about film, yes. OK, after this, we'll be talking about surviving lockdown. And, uh... Two fried eggs, two poached eggs, two scrambled eggs, and two medium-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. And two hard-boiled eggs. Make that three hard-boiled eggs. So, Sue, your film-loving family has found a novel way of dealing with lockdown. Yes, we all love film. There's there's four of us. There's um, me, my husband, and my two adult sons who live away from home. One's in Brighton, one's in Belfast. Joe in Belfast actually studied film for his BA and his MA. So he knows a lot. We all love film and we love writing. We love writing well. So we thought in lockdown, we would send a film question round, one a week that we would all answer and it would be something that we could reflect on and trawl back through our film memory to pick um, the one film that we wanted to write about that week. So it just seemed like the perfect lockdown activity um and it was better than sort of just waving to each other on zoom yes i can i can imagine what sort of topics did you choose well um it was inspired and actually cribbed from the review section in the guardian on a saturday which has a books q a and i think it's called um the books that built me or the books that made me and so we took those questions um completely and just used those and there's 12 questions we're halfway through at the moment and the ones that we've answers so far are the film that changed my life, film I wish I'd made, the film that changed my mind, the last film to make me laugh, the last film to make me cry, and the film that had the greatest influence on me. So, crikey, they're big topics here, and we kind of need to get them right. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, the four of you come up with your own answers to each one? Yes. 
we do. And we send them around to each other. We read each other's answers. And at the end, my son will put them into a booklet for each of us to have with all the film posters in. So it's a nice family memento. So far, it's been tricky, really. But to take one of the categories, the film that had the greatest influence on me, I'll tell you what, for example, we said. So my husband picked Louis Bunuel's Viridiana, which he saw as a teenager with his dad on BBC Two um, one Sunday afternoon and was absolutely enthralled. He had never seen anything so radical, surreal, revolutionary, different. And it's something that sort of gave a tooth and good salute to authority as well um, in Spain at the time. And um, he went on to study film, and in particular the films of Bunuel. Um, my son, Joe, in Belfast saw a mesmerising eight-hour film called In Course of the Miraculous. How long? <laughs> eight hours? <laughs> <laughs> he just sat there, transfixed, and he wrote about it for the first issue of his Playtime Journal as one of the first essays to feature in there. My other son, Edwin, saw the adaptation of Joe Dunthorne's affecting coming-of-age novel, um, Submarine, as a teenager, mid-teens, struggling to find his way to know his place as a teenager. And it was such a great film for a teenager to watch because it sort of, it revealed to him that he didn't have to be the teenager that people thought he should be. He could be thinking about philosophy, he could be thinking about ideas, he could be finding life weird and strange and difficult. So that was great for him to watch. Shall we listen to a clip from Submarine? Fantastic. None of this will matter when I'm 38, but it's been two months since your Dana last spoke to me. Your new boyfriend has an incredibly long neck. Just thinking about your ass makes me angry. I wish I could hand in this excuse now. Dear Mr. Davy, please may Oliver be excused from class. His tiny heart is broken. Yours sincerely, Lloyd Tate. Stretching out the neck on your evening. That was a clip yeah. from Submarine, directed by Richard Ayawadi. The film that has the greatest influence on me um, was Dim Vendors' Wings of Desire. It came out in the 80s, but I only saw it a couple of years ago, and I just found it beautiful, mesmerising, dreamy, original, about two angels that roam Berlin just before the wall comes down. And they're looking for lost souls to comfort They've lost their way. They put a comforting sh- uh, arm around their shoulder and they help the people of Berlin. It's about loss of identity after the war um, that city has, but it's a beautiful symphony to that city. And I went on to look at all of Invenders' back catalogue, to watch Paris, Texas again, which I loved. And I screened Wings of Desire in the Shepherd's Hut Cinema at New Park for my birthday that year. It's great how this leads you back to things as well, doesn't it? Things you've watched before, but you might want to watch again. That's right. It does take you back, yes. And what other topics, then? Which ones you, you mentioned? What's, what's made you laugh and cry? Laugh with Noel and I, always for my husband. That 80s film about two students, actors, sort of dropouts. They go on holiday by mistake. Um, and there's so many great lines in it. Uh, unfortunately, Boris Johnson picked it to watch on recovery through lockdown, so that's taken the shine off it a bit for my husband. Um, <laughs> um, what was it, Dr. Strangelove, one of my son's picked? A absurdist sort of conversation he picked up on. Um, I picked Capernaum, which was a Lebanese film of last year, I think. It wasn't a funny film. It was a very devastating film about poverty and neglect but there was at the heart of it there's a beautiful scene when a young lad who's looking after a baby believe it or not on the streets of Beirut is dragging him around in a little makeshift bathtub on wheels and the baby looks so nonplussed it's a very funny scene and cry <laughs> and cry yeah and cry. yeah mm-hmm. and what, what else made you cry sorry that's a very personal question but uh... Well, that was the one I picked to make me laugh. But to make me cry, um, I realised I don't, I don't cry much at film, which was quite a revelation because I thought I did. But it turns out I don't. But the one, if I even think about it, I'll get a lump in my throat, is the ending of Billy Elliot, Stephen Daldry's film of 2000. And 
bit at the end where he's become the ballet dancer that he always wanted to be and dreamt to be. He's taken the lead in Swan Lake and he just leaped onto the stage and his father, who's in the audience, just gasped. And then the film finishes. It's always making me cry. <laughs> I'm talking about it. Because it's the, about the fulfilment of dreams. Yeah. And that will, that will get you every time. And here's a clip from Billy Elliot. This'll sound strange, Billy, but for some time now I've been thinking of the Royal Ballet School. Aren't you a bit old, miss? No, not me, you. I'm the bloody teacher. They hold auditions in Newcastle. Never be good enough. I hardly know out. No, look, they're not interested in how much ballet, you know. They teach you that. That's why they're a ballet school. It's how you move and how you express yourself that's important. Express what? I think you're good enough to go for it. Would it mean an awful lot of hard work? Julie Walters and Jamie Bell there in Billy Elliot. What, what topics have you not covered yet that you're planning to cover? Well, the next one is um, the film I think is the most overrated. Ah, oh, right. There could be quite a few of them, actually. <laughs> the film I couldn't finish, so I guess it's the one you walk out on. Um, I don't know whether people do that often, but I don't tend to. I mean, some people at New Park seem to walk out um, quite often. If it's a film that doesn't particularly fit the bill of what they thought it might be, perhaps, or I don't do that. Um, other films are the one that you pass on as a gift, so a recommendation, your earliest film memory. So there's still some fascinating characters. It sounds a really good idea and, and a nice way to keep in touch with a, a, a common interest. Yes, yeah. and you yeah. find out so much about each other. You think you know each other, but you all these little family anecdotes and personal revelations are very lovely to read about. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Sue. That's, it's been great to talk to you and good luck with the rest of the um, rest of the programme. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm now going to hand over to Patrick. It's one of the most famous openings in all cinema. On a remote beach in medieval Sweden, a knight is confronted by the spectral figure of death. He challenges death to a game of chess on the condition that if he wins, death will free him. The Seventh Seal, released in 1957, was a landmark film in European cinema, enhancing Ingmar Bergman's status as a director of international repute and establishing Max von Sydow who died in March at the age of 90 as a star. Von Sydow was only 27, but he was already becoming known in the world of Swedish theatre and cinema. He had already made four films before The Seventh Seal, but had predominantly performed on the stage, encountering Bergman at the Malmo City Theatre. Von Sydow went on to make 11 films with Bergman between 1957 and 1971. By the time of their final film together, The Touch... Von Sydow had already made several Hollywood films, making his American debut as Christ in 1965 in the star-studded biblical epic The Greatest Story Ever Told. In a career that lasted over 70 years, he never stopped working, regularly featuring in big-budget Hollywood movies, including Flash Gordon, Minority Report and Star Wars The Force Awakens, but also continuing to work in more modestly financed European cinema, in the UK, in France, in Germany, and in his native Sweden. Six foot four inches tall, a striking, gaunt figure with piercing blue eyes and a voice that exuded authority, equally adept at lonely, heroic figures and menacing villains, he became one of the most recognisable character actors in cinema. It is probably fair to say that few of his films without Bergman achieved or indeed deserved the critical acclaim that had been heaped on those he had made with his mentor. Apart from The Seventh Seals, films such as Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, Hour of the Wolf and Shame remain held in very high regard. However, his performances in several Hollywood films lifted them to a level they perhaps would not otherwise have achieved. 
In the notorious horror film from 1973, William Friedkin's The Exorcist, he played the title role, Father Lancaster Merrin, who casts out the demon from the young girl. Here he is, preparing the young priest who will assist him, played by Jason Miller, for the forthcoming confrontation. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us. But he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful. So don't listen. Remember that. Do not listen. I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced that there she's... There's only one. Von Sido manages to maintain his power and authority in the face of a torrent of obscenities and thick green bile. Two years later, in Sidney Pollack's spy thriller, Three Days of the Condor, he played the ice-cold assassin Joubert with an unnervingly dispassionate approach to his occupation. Here he offers some chilling observations to Condor, lowly CIA operative Joe Turner, played by Robert Redford, who has found himself embroiled in a deadly sequence of events. It would happen this way. You may be walking. Maybe the first sunny day of the spring. And a car will slow beside you. And a door will open. And someone you know, maybe even trust, will get out of the car. And he will smile, a becoming smile. But he will leave open the door of the car and offer to give you a lift. Only Von Sido could make such a ruthless killer appear civilised and almost compassionate. In 1986, he was called on by writer-director Woody Allen to play a small but important role in his ensemble comedy-drama Hannah and Her Sisters. Allen had, of course, offered his own homage to Bergman several years previously with Interiors, and here he cast Von Sido as Frederick, the misanthropic partner of one of the titular sisters of Hannah, Lee, played by Barbara Hershey. In this scene, she arrives home, fresh from the bed of her sister's husband, to find him in a typically sardonic frame of mind. You're late. Missy and I kept talking, and I didn't realise how late it had gotten. You missed a very dull TV show about Auschwitz. More gruesome film clips, and more puzzled intellectuals declaring their mystification over the systematic murder of millions. The reason why they can never answer the question, how could it possibly happen, is that it's the wrong question. Given what people are, the question is, why doesn't it happen more often? Of course it does, in subtler forms. I have a little headache from this weather. Oh. It's been ages since I sat in front of the TV, just changing channels to find something. You see, the whole culture, Nazis, deodorant salesmen, Wrestlers, beauty contest, the talk show. Can you imagine the level of a mind that watches wrestling? Huh? But the worst are the fundamentalist preachers, third-rate con men, telling the poor suckers that watch them that they speak for Jesus. And to please send in money, 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 money. If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. Boncido's achievement in this film is to evoke sympathy for a character full of bile and resentment. In a future education event, I will be looking back at the career of this wonderful actor and attempting to discover if anything in this career, Sans Bergman, could be said to match the plangency of those extraordinary early films. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, that's that for this podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can contact us via walter at chichestercinema.org and it would help if you marked it podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Sue for joining us and thanks to, to my regular collaborators. So until the next time, it's goodbye from Carol. Goodbye and good film watching. And from Patrick. Goodbye. And from me, Sandy. So goodbye, keep safe. that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org. <laughs>